don't know about you, but this has been a long week. It's been one of those, um, is it over yet weeks? Sort of like the kids when you're on a trip, and they're like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the answer is no. We're not. We're not. And we've not arrived. Reading out of the Psalms this morning, I was just reminded in that that there will be a day where we will wake up and we will rejoice in the glory that is ours and that new state. But until then, welcome to life. Welcome to life. <clears throat> Continuing in our summer blitz, if I can call it that, I want to talk today. I was going to talk about being persecuted for the sake of Christ, but I'm going to save that till next week. Um, because I've, I want to sort my thoughts and make sure that I'm not speaking out of frustration rather than clarity. <laughs> you know how that is. You get there and you go, yeah, I got a lot to say. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that. You know what? I'm not going to say anything about that because it is often an opportunity for um, derailing what the Lord can do when we let our anger or frustration get in the way of teaching. So... At the last minute, I decided just to deal with a few principles that I've been dialoguing in my own mind and with some of you about and with some others, extended church people abroad and uh, for the last few years. And I want to talk a minute about faith. So go to Hebrews chapter 11 with me, starting in verse 1. We're not going to exegete this. I, I taught Hebrews rather extensively. Um, we'll never really get you know, through Everything that needs to be said when you start in the middle of a text, but uh, you know we'll get back into First Timothy in the fall, and uh, then I'm also going to try to revisit something, even if it's uh, asynchronous, to finish the book of James, um, which we were doing in 21 midweek. The Bible says in 11, 11 chapter of Hebrews. Now faith is, and I want us to be careful how we listen. I want you to listen to these words. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must be confident and convicted and assured faith that he exists, must believe, and that he rewards those who seek him. He blesses them. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, the flood and the destruction of the world, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed, and he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. 
and he went out not knowing where he was going, unseen. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, an unknown land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age of conception, she, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, Abraham, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return to it. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son to death, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because he saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Jesus Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That was Moses. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in the caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised to them since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
So we stop. You see why I needed to pause on the persecution part? Because Jesus, as we saw last week in John's gospel, Jesus said that if they hate the master, they're going to hate the servants. If they hate the father, they're going to hate the children. Basically the sentiment that when you're persecuted for my namesake, the problem is, is that we forget what it means to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. It is not this functional, political, uh, you know, Americanized Christianity that we're standing our ground or we're doing our theological duties that causes persecution. That's just self-inflicted stupidity. And we're just, you know, if I throw a brick at my face and it hurts, <laughs> what did you expect? To be persecuted for the sake of Christ is to rest in the context of everything by faith. And then also to serve and to love according to the commands of Christ that is so far into the world that causes those, especially religious people and humble, self-righteous people to hate you. So parsing that out personally, I have to find the arrogance in myself, and I have to find the self-righteousness in me. <laughs> and I have to realize that the only way to walk forward in these things is by faith. By faith. It's the only way. It's the only way. And so I've got 12, <clears throat> it just worked out that way, I had 11, I added one this morning. Had 12 principles, just basic principles regarding the Christian life that I think are foundational. And this is not exhaustive. There are a lot more that I think are more important. But as it relates to walking, as it relates to our identity, as it relates to living authentically, not putting on a facade, not pretending, not faking it till we make it, not to act and live and look according to the culture around us, that even the Christian culture or the Reformed culture or the Sovereign Grace culture or whatever culture it might, we might be attached to, we need to live according to the Scripture and we need to be content. We need to be free. And we also need to be free to know that we're not going to get it right every time and that we're probably going to mess it up and that we're probably going to thumb our nose at what we know we ought to be doing and how we ought to be living sometimes. Sometimes we're going to get frustrated. Sometimes we're going to get aggravated. Sometimes we're going to become fearful and worried. Sometimes we're going to doubt. Sometimes we're just going to be apathetic and not care at all. But in all of those things, Christ never changes and the gospel is still power unto life and the light will always overcome the darkness. And that's where faith comes in. The nature of faith is having assurance in what you can't see. Having conviction to know. Like Paul would use the terms. He would say, I, th I think he wrote this, but he would say in Romans, you know, I am persuaded, I am convinced. Nothing can shake me in this context. Well, prove it. You can't. You can't prove unto faith. You can prove logically. You can prove academically. You can prove philosophically through argumentation. You can do all sorts of things. Pastor Trey's out of town, so I can't talk about mathematics right now, probability. So I'll just let that go because he's not there to give me the your wrong eye. But you can prove all sorts of things. But you can't prove faith. Faith is or it is not. 
And some people say, well, you can prove faith by questioning, by inquiring, by digging in to what someone thinks that they think they know about what they think. And then based on your interpretations of your godlike divine eye, you can then discern whether they're born again by their answers. No, you can't. And I'm going to give some extremely simple explanations, simple examples. For example, I know that the scripture concurs that there are children who are born again. There are two-year-olds who are born again. There are one-year-olds who are born again. There are five-year-olds who are born again. It is not about our cognitive ability to absorb context, information, and logical precepts that gives us eternal life. And God, the, the Spirit, is not in the business of making us knowledgeable without study. And study takes time. Folks, two weeks ago, I read, I read over 800 pages in two days and absorbed all the material. 90% accurate. No, most people can't do that. Last year, I couldn't, I couldn't have read eight pages in 800 days and gotten 2% accurate. It just depends on where we are. Some people can't even read. Did you know that? And some people that can read can't comprehend. If salvation, if regeneration... If the work of God is dependent upon the cognitive and academic abilities of his people, we are damned in our seats. We are condemned before God this very day. If James Tippins has to give philosophical or theological seminary explanations to everything that we might discern that we are truly in the faith, not only are we becoming God ourselves, we have no hope. What does it mean to have faith as assurance and conviction? That means barring everything we comprehend, we rest in the center of our soul. I don't know, but I do know that Christ is my righteousness. And some people can't even articulate that because they don't have the vocabulary to express it. And I absolutely refuse to be party to this nonsense for your sake. We preach the gospel according to the word. We preach the gospel in all of its context. We preach the gospel in all of its rich theological precepts. We teach the gospel preposition by preposition. And God, the Spirit, will cause you to agree. And sometimes you're like, well, I've never thought of it that way before. Let me struggle with it. And sometimes you might get on social media. You might watch a video. Some well-meaning you know, do-gooder might come along and say, well, you know, if you're really in the faith, you might think about not watching TV. You might think about whether or not your baptism was authentic. You might worry about what version of the Bible you're using. Or they may play with the divinity of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus, the immutability of Jesus. If you don't know what I mean there, don't worry about it. It's not important unto, unto life. Christ is 
who he is at all times, and nothing that we think is going to change that. So if Christ is the Savior of his people, beloved, we rest in the sufficiency of his sacrifice, of his life, of his righteousness, of his promises. And regeneration and faith is not knowing the details of all of that. When Jesus in John 4 spoke to the woman at Sychar, she just argued over and over and over and argued and argued and argued. She was arguing with God like Jacob, wrestling with God. Like Moses. Like Jonah. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, she breathes in her lungs and says, I just guess I'm going to have to wait and just trust that Messiah will teach me all these things. And her resolve, her resolve, that's faith. She didn't apprehend any of the details that Jesus was laying down, the theological richness that he was laying down. God the Spirit gave her repentance. And she was alive. And she didn't even know it was him until he said it. That's why Jesus makes it very clear in all the examples he gives the disciples. Unless your faith is like a little child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless, Nicodemus, you are a teensy, teensy baby born of the Spirit, like an infant needing its mother, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And I hear it. Oh, this old mystical, supernatural. Absolutely. The work of God is mystical and supernatural. That's the point of it being divine. <laughs> I mean, God didn't write the Bible as an instruction manual for us to dig for the treasure. And when we find it, we made it. No, that is law keeping. I don't care how you, if you apply sovereign grace principles and theology as necessary for life, you're a law keeper. And if you impose what I'm not saying on what I am saying based on the years of, 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 of all the work and the teaching that I've done, then shame on you. I'm not, I'm not concerned with the way you or someone else might twist what I'm trying to say. If you have a question, ask it. I'm happy to answer it. But you, beloved, will not be condemned for questions. You, beloved, will not be condemned for error. You, beloved, will not be condemned for mistakes. You will not be condemned for wrong doctrine. You will not be condemned because Christ Christ set the record straight. Do you see that? It's subtle. It's very subtle. And it, it invokes a whole lot of thought and people they're just like, oh my goodness and some of you know and you've experienced some of this stuff but it's just very frustrating. And just because people are struggling with it doesn't mean they're our enemies. Brothers and sisters, we will struggle with these things of learning to rest versus learning to know what everybody's told us we must know in order to rest. You just heard Hebrews 11 in its entirety. Not one thing there 
had anything to do with theological things. And if that is the Apostle Paul's explanation to Jewish Christians on their resting, you know what they were struggling with? You mean all the stuff we've done on the hundreds and hundreds of years of doing and being and all the things that we've, it's all for nothing? Paul says it well. Yeah, it's all for nothing. Except that God purposed it for pointing to the Christ. As Paul would say, we, these guys didn't receive the promise. Apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The power of faith. The power of faith in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul, well, don't turn there. Just go there. Let's just look all these up. We got time. First Corinthians chapter 2. And I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. In other words, I wasn't a smart guy figuring it all out, giving you all the instructions that you need to get. I wasn't the mansplainer of Christ. But my speech and my wisdom were a demonstration of the spirit of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then people go, well, yeah, you got it. I got you. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto life, unto salvation, first to the Jew, then the Greek. Absolutely. The problem is, is people think the gospel is something written on a page. And I'm going to fix your fear at the very end, you know. Number eight, number nine of my points today. This is number two. All scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture is the full and only and final revelation of God. So everything that we know concerning God is from scripture. But the problem is sometimes people forget that it's the work of God that puts us into the place of understanding scripture. If we're not born again, we're not going to understand it anyway. And God doesn't use the written scripture to regenerate us. His spirit regenerates us. Sometimes while we're hearing it, sometimes before we hear it, sometimes after we hear it. That's his wish. Romans 3, right? Being born again is a spiritual matter. I mean, if we all in the context of historically, in the tradition we believe that regeneration precedes faith, and you can't understand anything until you've been born of God. And if your understanding causes you to be born of God, then you're the guy, you're the girl, you're the one, you're the power. It's not the gospel. The gospel literally means the good report of Jesus. The good report about this man from Nazareth named Jesus who was the son of God, who created the world and everything in it, who is God, and who came to the world and created the womb from which he was born and born into the world with a human body and lived for 34 years. For three and a half, four years, made himself known to the world, and he taught about the kingdom of God. He taught about the grace of God. He taught about the promises of God. And then to fulfill all promises, because you know that's what a prophecy is, right? It's just a promise. To fulfill all promises, 
for the sake of God's people, for the elect, for the saints, for the gathered ones, for the bride, for the beautiful ones, for the family, for the adoptions, for the adopted. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for the sake of the Father's righteous justice so that it would be upheld that we could be called the righteousness of God. And so we are now the children of God. We are the children of God. And God the Spirit will never allow his children to leave this world without understanding that they are his. But people are so fearful of not understanding the power of Christ, the power of faith, the power of God to impart repentance, which literally means a change of disposition of the thinking brain, of the thinking mind. It's not even brain back then. Mind is an abstract. Your brain is the organ. Your mind is your existence, really. It's just so hard sometimes. Because we want to be in control of it all. We want to make sure that we have a foundation that's visible. We want to make sure we have something to stand on. Something to tether ourselves to. That's got a little bit more security than the invisible promise of God. And beloved, there's nothing in the Bible that teaches us that we can stand on anything but the invisible promise of God. And if we're standing on anything but the invisible promise of God, we're just like Israel. We're putting one foot on Moses and the other foot on Abraham, and we're saying, look at here, look at what I've got. Jesus came and bowled over both of those pins, and they had nowhere to stand. And he said, if you're not standing on me because Abraham looked to me and Moses wrote of me, you can't see the Father. I don't care what you say. And I'm an academic. I got 16 years of education. It's a lot of study. And you know what it's worth? Zero. Well, it's worth a lot in the context of the economy, but it's worth zero. Well, not even really. But it's worth zero. And what it taught me is that I didn't need it. <laughs> but I fell prey back in the day of being in these circles, these great debaters and these great philosophers. And I'm not an idiot, but I felt like an idiot. I'm like, you know what? I've got to study this stuff. Well, if I'm going to study this stuff, I might as well get credit for it. That's me. Well, I learned how to make a widget. I might as well make a business out of it. What I learned is I know where this stuff comes from. I know where these ideas come from. They come from man. They come from history. They come from antiquity. There's nothing new. This doctrinal perfectionism isn't new. This new law-keeping isn't new. It was happening in the days of Jesus. It's been happening throughout history. And all the people who continually rise up on the clouds of ego and say, this is the way, and y'all follow me. They're not following Christ. They're following history. It just seems a little more pious. That's why the Puritans were so powerful. They were so prominent. Because in the eyes of everybody, they were so perfect in the context of the picture of Christ. But yet they weren't. They were just... Neo-Pharisees. I love music. I love classical music. I love ancient music. I love all sorts of stuff. I love chants. I listen to that stuff every now and then. But I also listen to contemporary music. And in the pop culture of Mozart's day was Mozart. That was pop music. 
Yet when I got into music school, we learned how to hold our sneezes. We learned how to dress appropriately. Had to wear tuxedos. I don't even think they do that anymore. But in music school, I mean, you know, if it was classical in nature, there was some pomp. There was some pomp. There was some, there was some regalia to be had. Certain color cummerbunds. And, uh, you know, as bougie as I am, Fancy James, I wasn't going to wear no clip-on tie. I learned how to tie those things. Because it was always a joke, you know. Trombone players come up and snatch your tie off and throw it right before the concert. Ha ha! Well, they couldn't snatch mine. What does it matter? The point I'm making is, in Mozart day, it wasn't a formal affair. It was a rock concert. But we want to recreate that in the context of today as if it's the proper way of doing it. It's just the way things were. Could you imagine a Van Halen crowd and a Mozart concert? Yeah, I've seen it. And that's what we've done with our faith. We've let history dictate what was more pure, what was more pious, what was more perfect. Because it was prominent. And instead of just being authentic who we are today, I mean, I have like one suit left. I don't even know if it fits. The last four weddings I've done, I didn't even wear one. Because I got that big robe I paid a quarter million dollars for. I'm going to wear that. It needs to be formal. And we just put on the show. We just put on the garb. We put on the garment. Beloved, this is what's happening. If we don't understand the idea of faith and repentance. The third thing today is repentance. What is repentance? I mean, we see it in the scripture a lot. Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. But see, that's in Acts chapter 3, I think. And that's a historical story. That's a story of something that happened historically in the lives of the apostles. And they are, that, that is not prescriptive. And believe it or not, the word repentance wasn't used there. It wasn't used there. When Peter's talking in that context, Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Yeah, it's Acts chapter 3, verse 17. As did also those who rule over you. But what God foretold, what God promised by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah, his Christ, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. I want you to hear the context. And Peter did not use the word repent. He used a word that would literally be translated in our English today. Change your thinking, people. <laughs> change the way you're thinking, man. You've got to change your mind. Change the way you're thinking. I don't even like change your mind. Change your thinking. And in that, he's telling them to change their thinking. That's not God granting change of thinking. That would be like Jesus saying to the disciples, Hey, wash your hands. And people thinking, Oh, I've got to wash my hands. Okay, now I'm clean. No, Jesus was going to wash their feet. And Peter refused. And Jesus says, Hey, listen, if I don't wash you, you have no place with me. He said, Then wash all of me, man. Wash my head, my hands, my feet. Let me take off all my clothes. You just bathe me, okay? Because I want to be where you are. I want, I want to be known in you. He didn't get it. But yet in John 17, Jesus did say what? He says, the word that I've spoken to you made you clean. 
The context always, listen, the context always defines the meaning. The definition is just a half-hearted attempt at allowing people to understand what a word could mean. The context tells you what it means. And Peter says, repent. Change the way you're thinking. Turn back. That your sins may be blotted out. See, the context there, speaking to those Jews, they understood about the blotting out of sins. They understood the sacrificial system. Peter didn't have to explain it to him. And constantly, we don't have to explain it to people either. Even if they're ignorant of it. They can learn it as they grow in their understanding. If they ask questions, surely. But their apprehension of the sacrificial system and its purposes is not what being born again is about. It's not what faith rests in. It's just the depths of this wonderful, powerful report of God's promises from creation to revelation to glorification. So change the way you're thinking. Remember, you want your sins to be blotted out. You're here at these festivals. You're doing all this kind of stuff. But if you don't change the way you're thinking, you're not going to understand it. You're not going to see it. Your sins are going to remain. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. And you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant of God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And they were speaking to the people, Peter and John. And the captain of the temple of the Sadducees, this is Acts chapter 4, came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested him and put him in custody until the next day. Because many who had heard the story of Christ believed. And the number of men who came <laughs> was about 5,000. I've had friends who were arrested for doing things on the street in certain places. Some of them unjustly, some of them justly. They violated the law. And they spoke ill and they attacked people verbally. Go to jail. But I've never, ever in my life seen anyone be arrested because 5,000 people believe the story of Jesus on an open street. <laughs> it's the power of of the gospel. A call to repentance. It's just a challenge to change your thinking. The gift of repentance is faith. Because a lot of people have changed their thinking and their loss is a ball in high weeds. As a black cricket on a dark night can't see the good news is is as the scripture teaches us the fourth thing is that the word of god is transformative the word of god is powerful 
The Word of God is, Hebrews, living and breathing, sharper than any two-edged sword. It does what it needs to do. The prophets would say that. God would say, I send my Word and it will not return to me empty. It will do that for which I sent it. So when the Word of God is established in the hearts of His people, when the Word of God is preached to those who profess to be in Christ, and those people receive it, we praise God for it. When others in the same group say, well, I'm just not with you there, that is not our problem. Well, let's learn, let's walk, let's talk. And then we don't get to be the educators of the one of, of determining who is saved, when, and where. We just get to be objects of mercy. To continue to disciple each other and look forward to the day when people are truly living the new birth that they've been granted in the knowledge of the gospel of Christ deeply. The Word of God in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is how we understand the depths of the gospel. This is how we understand sovereign grace. When we've been made alive. When we've been born of God and God the Spirit teaches us. When we're doing the disciplines of the faith. But you know, there are so many people in their journey of seeking out truth that they believed lie over here and they believed a lie over here and they believed a lie over here. And they could or could not have been born again during that process. Some people who are not born again come to the truth and they realize, wow, I have been seeking out law and lies and God has shown me the truth. I'm alive today. And others have been alive and been just like the churches of Galatia, just like the churches of Thessalonica, just like the churches of Rome. And they've, they've, they've been confused and they've been railroaded and they've been doing stupid stuff and believing silly things. Because there's always going to be a group of perfectionists coming along trying to teach silly things. And then God will teach his people rightly. But no one has a right to come along and say, you know, because yesterday you had an error, today now you're born of God. Because you know what they say a week later when you change your mind on that? You never were. <laughs> and we're not talking about ridiculous things. We're not talking about people who never heard the story of Jesus. We're not talking about people who have been involved in cults or whatever, but yet I have met people born of God in cults who got into cults because they never had a church that taught them the truth. They never had a church that cared for them and oversaw their growth. They never had a congregation that they felt free to say, you know what I've been thinking? That Jesus wasn't God. Okay, let's walk through that. Can a born-again person think that? Yes, sir. They can. Because they can sit at night and they can think. They can get on YouTube. They can think. They can think about what their grandma told them 70 years ago. And they go, you know, I've just been thinking. It's called thinking. We all think. And so what we do is we arrest our thinking. We judge it by the Word of God. But those scriptures are not even taught to be read correctly. Most of the people I know aren't reading the Bible. Most of the people I know are love to read the prophets, 
but never the instruction to the church. And yet they want to live a Christian life. Read both, please. And some people that I know, they, they, they piecemeal the Scripture. Or they go in and they're trying to develop theological systems in the Scripture. The Word is transformative. It teaches us to learn itself, to learn it. The Word is God. The Word is living. And the Word commands us to do something. And this is number six. What are we to do? Grow in our knowledge and grow in our love. And there is an incredible, silly, incredibly silly misapplication of what it means to love somebody by thinking that keeps it real, speak the truth in love, is to condemn a person because of their error or their unbelief. That's why so many people, I'm not, I'm not even going to exaggerate. Let's just say four or five people a week will message me from the internet, through the church website or social media. And I don't answer them all. I just sort of send them links to the answers that I've done over the years. And out of those four or five, these four or five specific things, I get more questions than that, but these four or five questions always relate to, I don't think I'm saved. I don't think it's, I'm safe because I was reading on a blog today that unless I ever came to the knowledge that what I believed when I was seven was a lie, then I couldn't be born again today, and I'm 29. What did you eat yesterday morning? What did you eat Friday? What pair of socks did you wear Monday? How are you going to know what you did 20 years ago? I meditate, I think, I clear my mind, I pray. I do a lot of cool stuff to keep my body and my mind sharp. And it's hard, it's not easy. And sometimes when I'm just sort of just laying there looking at the sky, I remember things from my childhood. And I get up and I go, oh, wow, I'm going to write that down. And I haven't remembered those things for 40 years. I remember some things we experienced, Levi, a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, some of those ping pong days. I've got to share that story with some of you. And if somebody had said something to me about that a week ago, I'd say, hey, you remember? I'd go, I don't, I don't think I do. And if they explain it again, I'm going, oh, yeah. It has nothing to do with you being born again. You can know and be wrong and forget all sorts of things. Now, I hear it. Well. People can come to faith in a false gospel. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Or false practice. I didn't say that. But believe it or not, beloved, very few people have a spiritual background or a church background. I was not raised in church as a child. When I was in 10th grade and got my driver's license, I found a church to attend. Having been born again for years. Studying the scripture with a family member. Not a pastor in a congregation. You don't need a pastor to be born again either. You know that, right? It's the Spirit's work. So we're taught to live the word. We're taught to live it out. To understand that we're to grow in love and knowledge. And my prayer, as Paul told the Philippians, 
is that you love, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discrimination, discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, the crazy thing is this includes being careful for error. Error is dangerous in the church, and the pastors and the overseers of the church have that charge. But when it comes, we have the divine commandment to maintain the peace and to work through it systematically and patiently if it takes 25 years. And nobody but Jesus himself gets to tell us how we deal with it. And we are to be looking to learn how to love. Practically abiding in the love of God while growing in the knowledge of Christ, which creates discernment. The more we know, the easier it is for us to go, yeah, I don't think that sounds right. And learning to love then allows us to go, all right, brother, let's talk more about that when we have time. And they get upset and you go, wait a minute, why are you upset? Are you not trusting in the power of Christ? You're not trusting in the sovereignty of God? God doesn't need our zeal and our anger and our frustration. Matter of fact, those are sinful things. Especially when they get, away, get in the way of what God has called us to do. I'm not saying that it's always sin, but it can be. And as we learn and discern, then we continually grow in Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 2 Peter 3, 18. How do we do that? Well, we do that. I mean, Peter would tell us. Peter would tell us, wouldn't he? Second Peter. He talks about being careful of false prophets and false teachers. He tells the elders to shepherd the flock in the context of humility and patience. Clothing ourselves with all humility. Peter gives a lot. He gives a lot. He talks about being set apart in our lives, suffering for the sake of righteousness. I'll be in, I'll be in 1 Peter some next week. In the second Peter, he talks about confirming your calling, confirming your salvation, confirming your election. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 3 of 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all. Isn't that funny? When we get upset with other people, we're really getting mad at God because he hasn't done something with his divine power. But this is what he's done in us. This is what he's done for you, beloved. His divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, which means you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, here's a command, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, 
with virtue, with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if we're not living out the instruction of the Bible, we're not growing in the knowledge of grace. If all we're doing is sitting around and constantly regurgitating theological things, listening to theological debates, having theological sermons, then we're missing 90% of the entirety of the Bible's instruction to the church. And at the flip side of that, we don't negate the, the, the immensely important and foundational realities of who Christ is and what the Bible teaches us. But do you need to understand, beloved, it took 90-something years for the New Testament to be finished. There is no exhaustive gospel. It's immeasurable. There's no bullet point, these are the five things you must know in order to be credible. This just doesn't happen. We embark on a journey to walk together, and we do it in love and in such a way that we are growing. Because if we know the love of God, we will live the love of God. And when I say that, I, I imitate John in his first epistle. It doesn't mean that you're not in Christ or that you're not born again or that you're not saved. It means that you're just living in a manner that's in conflict with the, with the very gospel that you believe. We are to continually grow, and we do so by handling the word of truth. Let's continue to read in 1 Peter. Whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted and he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an interest in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and you are established, listen, in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that putting off my body will, soon, will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to time to recall these things. And then what does he do in verse 16? He undergirds the scripture. We're not making this stuff up. This is not a clever devised myth. When we made known to you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice. We heard this voice from heaven, and we were with Jesus on the mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, that which we've been reading since we were children. Oh my, this is what they were talking about. You would do well to pay attention to that word as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, first of all, these are saved people. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But there's going to be some false prophets. There's going to be some people come in. And you know what? We're going to be those false prophets from time to time. And we get these inclinations and these ideas. And we just lovingly correct one another. And the correction is evident. We handle the word of truth. Do your best to present 
to God. This is instruction to elders specifically, but it has application. Do your best to present yourself to one as God, approved and approved worker who has no need of shame, rightly handling the word of truth. We have to practice interpreting the Bible. We have to practice loving and serving so that God the Spirit will give us the understanding of the knowledge of grace so that we will grow and love and prove we are the followers of Christ. Why does it matter? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness in its context. My commentary is not powerful over you. My commentary is explicative. My commentary is oversight. My commentary is nuanced. My commentary is minutiae. Sometimes it's humorous. But it's not power over you. It's the word of God and that engagement and that conversation and that life together that makes the difference. And we always go back. Well, James, what you said last week, I don't mind being pushed on that. What you said last week, it, it seemed to conflict. Okay, let's go to the Word of God. You know what? I stand corrected. You know what? I'm not understanding this right. You know what? I think I'm right, but I'm going to have to give me a few more months or a couple of years to figure that out. And that's how you should be. Because we are to obey the, Christ, the commandments of Christ. The Bible says we are to obey the commandments of Christ. What am I talking about? Love your neighbor as yourself. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you're loving God. And when you're doing that, you're fulfilling all the prophets. You're fulfilling all the requirements of the law. But yet, fulfilling all the requirements of the law is not us loving. It's Christ's love for us. It's Christ's love for us because his righteousness is our righteousness. The Bible, the gospel, the good news is not about what Christ did to show us the way that we could follow by doing as he did and earn salvation. The gospel message is that Christ is salvation. And that in his death, the reason he was raised to life is because he was sinless. And when he said it is finished, he meant it. It wasn't a euphemism. It's finished. I finished the work that I was sent to do. I paid for the sins of my people. Who are your people? You'll know them by their love for one another. You'll know them by their faith. What about all these knuckleheads that are running around as people of God and they're not loving? Then we just correct them. What if they don't change? Then we disassociate with them until they do. Every time I come to your house, you slap me in the face and throw dirt in my eye. I'm probably not going to come around until I know you're not going to do that anymore. Or worse, you invite me over and I open the door and just throw sand in your face. I'm going to fix that. We're to obey Christ's commands. Why? Because the power of Christ's resurrection is ours. God's love for us is proven in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's really the, it's the critical reality of things. I mean, see, we believe everything. We've got Marvel movies. We've got thousands of years of incredible Greek and Roman writings, of powerful things, just all sorts of supernatural stuff. But Jesus, historically, is just this man came from a town nobody wanted to associate with. 
and claimed to be the Son of God, and he died, and he rose from the dead, and hundreds and hundreds of people saw him, and they wrote about it. And God the Spirit in the story of Christ shows us that the power of the resurrection is ours. We became like him in his death. In other words, he died, so we died. So our justice is satisfied, or God's justice is satisfied in the death of Christ. The record's clean. The wall of hostility is gone. So therefore, the final thing I want to say, I've already preached about probably a dozen times this summer, is that we are free. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There is no slavery in the life of the Christian. So much so that Paul has to warn us, hey now, wait a, wait a, wait a minute. We know what is good and prudent. We know what is wicked. Let's avoid the wicked. Don't use this freedom, this amazing grace. Don't use this absolute, just no shackles and no boundaries as an excuse to sin. But it also includes freedom of our conscience. Freedom from fear, freedom from anxiety, freedom from worry, which fits right in line with the commandments of the apostles, thus Christ, who says, do not worry, rejoice. I mean, Jesus, don't worry about tomorrow. What are you doing? Yesterday's over, tomorrow? Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Why are we worried? It's a commandment. So until we find that authentic freedom to be ourselves in a community without shame, we're just not free. I didn't say we weren't saved. I just said we're not free. Beloved, I want you to be free. I want you to be free. I don't want you to be shackled. And I want to sound antinomian. I want to sound universal because that's how the gospel portrays it. That's how the story expresses it. And then we learn, no, 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 no. There are good and prudent boundaries. There are good and practical ways of having safety. That's why we don't let toddlers run in the freeway. But we might let them run in the backyard knowing they're going to hit their heads on something. If it isn't but the grass. We don't let 10-year-olds play with candles for a reason. So you buy them the LED candle. There's always prudence. There's always wisdom. There's always learning. There's always living. But beloved, we've got to grow in freedom. We have to have the freedom You and I have to have the freedom to engage each other in life knowing we're going to rub each other the wrong way or we're going to say or experience things or we're not going to want to be honest and that's okay. We just have to have the freedom because until we are really resting, we're not fully embracing the gift of faith. And I've not figured that out yet. So according to the Bible, then, I've just got to do it every day. I've just got to remind myself every day. You've got to remind me when you talk. And I have to remind you. We've got to be reminded of the freedom. 
of the love of God that overcomes fear. Let's pray. Father, these things, oh, I know, I know I have said things this morning that when I listen to them, I'm like, well, that doesn't really work, or that's going to open up a can of worms that I might have worded that better. But Father, you know what I'm trying to say. You know what we need. You know where we need to go. You know what we've been through. You know everything. All at once, all the time, forever. And Father, you've known us before the world began. We haven't always known you. So we thank you for that knowledge. We thank you for the sovereignty of your work in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for giving us rest. We thank you, Lord, for giving us true doctrine and deep theology. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us practical instruction and loving commands. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that we would all be free to live authentically, to not worry about the self-imposed boundaries or the cultural boundaries that we put on ourselves concerning our faith in the Christian life. That we would heed the warnings of Scripture, but at the same time live and breathe in the depths of that grace that is ours that we would be ignited and compelled by the love that you've shown us in Jesus rather than the fear of wrath, which is not ours to bear. And Father, there are some of us who have struggled with emotions and our bodies and relationships and with other things in life that just we just can't seem to overcome them. Lord, be the healer of our minds, of our bodies. Be the healer of our hope. that we might praise you for it, that we might be present with others in our lives to give them the promise of hope. Father, help us as your people to stop living in seminary mindset, to stop living in this just rigidity of study that's not holistic, that's not the full counsel of your word. Give us, give us life abundantly that we may grow, that we may grow into the knowledge of love and grace. And so, Father, I, I thank you that your perfection will not fail and my faithfulness is as good as dead when it starts. So we trust in you and your promise. We trust in you and your power. We trust in you and the person of Jesus Christ, your son, whom you have sent to save us. And in him alone do we rest by your divine work. Teach us, Christ. Help us to change our minds about the errors that we have. Help us to grow and be patient and loving as we help others patiently traverse this great life. In Christ we pray. Amen.